I have any questions later on, we can just edit them out. <laughs> well, indeed, yeah, I could just take out obviously all of this and um, anything yeah, else. This that is, we don't, this we is don't rubbish. Want no one wants to listen to this. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Unfinished Unpublished. My name's Emily Anderson and my guest this week is Richard Hurst. Richard is a brilliant writer and director for television and the stage. His writing includes three series of Bluestone 4-2, the BBC sitcom about a bomb disposal unit serving in Afghanistan, which he co-wrote and created with James Carey. He co-wrote the multi-award winning and BAFTA-nominated Miranda, also for the BBC, as well as several episodes of Secret Diary of a Call Girl, which was for ITV2. On the stage, he co-wrote and directed the Olivier Award-nominated Potted Potter and Potted Panto. There's loads of other stuff that he's done as well, and if you give him a quick Google, you'll find out plenty of other nuggets in his back catalogue. When we chatted, Richard told me about three projects that are either unfinished or unpublished. The first of those projects is Bluestone 42 itself. Richard has lots of ideas about what could happen next to the characters. The second is a sitcom about an authoritarian leader, which didn't go ahead because people got a bit angsty about being assassinated. And the third is a novel that very intriguingly is completely finished, but never made it into the public realm. As well as that, there are lots of fabulous anecdotes about Bluestone 42 and the real-life inspiration for it. And yes, that does include the bits with the fridge. Just to give you a heads up, the language in Bluestone 42 does reflect the actual language of the army, but as Richard points out, it's nothing in comparison to what you'll have heard from Malcolm Tucker if you're a fan of the thick of it. We also have a chat about how Richard had to change certain jokes in performances of Potted Potter and Potted Panto, depending on when and where they were being performed. And we talk too about whether or not comedy and satire have any effect on politics. Towards the end of the interview, I make a little bit of a tit of myself by messing up on my research, which I promise you I did do, when I ask Richard about Miranda but do stick around to hear about what it's like when Miranda gets recognised in public and to find out about the lunch habits of the Miranda team. What really struck me throughout my conversation with Richard was the attention to detail that he gives to his writing, even to the level of having an argument over whether Matthew Lewis's character in Bluestone 4-2 should wear sunglasses. It turns out he has some pretty strong opinions on that one. Eagle-eared listeners will be able to hear a train in the background of Richard's recording. Hopefully that's not too distracting. I personally think it gives the whole thing a bit of extra authenticity. So I'll jump straight in then, if I may, by asking you about Bluestone 42. And that's partly because I'm very into it, but also partly because it has a lot that relates to things not being finished. And one of the topics that comes up on this podcast is the difficulties people face when starting projects, let alone finishing them. And yeah. given the subject matter of Bluestone 4.2, I wondered if you'd faced any barriers to writing or filming it. Well, not really. We had we had a really fantastic producer. Well, I mean, he was an executive producer, ultimately. He didn't actually produce the actual show, but he, he kind of shepherded it shepherded it to happening and he had our back he kind of protected us uh, and he sort of made sure that it it happened and and fought for it Mm -hmm. and we weren't James Carey uh, the other writer and I weren't party to all of that but it wasn't that difficult I mean it's one of those shows where in a way you could kind of turn up and go we want to do a, a sitcom about bomb disposal in Afghanistan and the obvious answer is, well, that's you can't absolutely can't do that. But mm. then every broadcaster wants to be the broadcaster who's going, yeah, we're doing shows that no one else can do. Okay, you know, so the the sort of audacity of the idea, in a way, is is an argument for it as much as against it. I think, and it it happened very quickly for a TV show. I mean, some TV shows take ages to get made, and ours took about between. Uh, the first meeting where we went in and said, huh, something about the army? And <laughs> the uh, it actually being on telly was about three years, including including shooting it, which is which is pretty fast, actually, although yeah. it doesn't sound it and didn't feel like it at the time. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, to write the series and cast it and do read-throughs and, you know, actually get the series commissioned on top of getting a pilot commissioned and 
work out how to film it and where and uh, hire everyone and blah, 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 blah. You know, all of those things take a lot of time. Uh, and so it was fairly fast. And once it was, once we'd made it, we didn't really have any problems with any of the content, actually, apart from one thing, mm. which was in the pilot episode, the first episode, the American journalist gets shot in the head. Mm-hmm. And we had a shot. We had uh, we had a shot of him getting shot in the head, and there was kind of you know this blood spurted out of his head. Yeah, I mean, compared to a lot of TV shows, it wasn't particularly graphic, but the channel just went nope, <laughs> okay. <laughs> not doing that, and it, and it went right to the right to the top. It went right to the director general, Gosh. and they said that we will we will back this show, we will defend this show as long as you take that shot out. Okay. And we weren't very happy about it, but we were like, well, it's not worth <laughs> it's not worth dying on a hill for. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, dying in a valley, I think, was the actual situation. But <laughs> you know, you kind of go, well, all right, we don't we would rather it was in, but because it was important in a way that mm. you know, you saw the reality of someone actually dying, mm. but we had to lose it. And after that, pretty much anything was was kind of fine. I mean, we had all the discussion usual sort of discussions about language but after the thick of it <laughs> you could you know however many can I say rude words on your podcast you can you're very welcome to say rude words yeah, yeah how many how many fucks there are in a script there's never going to be as many as there are in an episode of the thick of it yeah and we managed 35 in one episode but <laughs> you know there's like 140 in one of the episodes of the thick of the thick of it yeah. so it's like fine <laughs> um <laughs> We had a, a bit of a debate about how to have two cunts in the same scene. <laughs> um, but one of them was a callback to the other cunt. So you kind of go, we have to sort of have both. It's either both or neither. Um, we A couple of bits of language were kind of toned down. But actually, mm. we thought the toned down version worked better anyway. So it was kind of fine. We recorded both versions. But stuff that we were worried about, like in uh, series three, they get the head of a suicide bomber and put it in a fridge. Mm. And our defence with that and with with any everything basically was uh, well, this actually happened. You know, this mm. was all of the almost everything that happened in the in our show was based on something that actually happened in in real life, including the head in the fridge. <laughs> wow. Um, okay. Yeah. So so we were like, well. You know, our, our sources in the army have verified this for us. Um, yeah. We we can put you in touch with them yeah. <laughs> if you'd like. And they're like, mm, no thanks. <laughs> Don't want to meet anyone who puts their head in a fridge. <laughs> but uh, but it was all true. So you know, that's your that's your defence. And actually, at the re- the original read through to get the series, mm. we had uh, one of our uh, many military advisors, a guy called Chris Hunter, who'd left the army a few years before and is. Uh, now a, a writer and a speaker, mm-hmm. motivational speaker. We got him to kind of come along to the read-through and he talked to the people from the channel afterwards. Mm-hmm. And they were like, so is this is this what it's like? And he was like, yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, this is, yeah, this is the real deal, you know, because we'd done our research. We'd talked to a lot of soldiers and we'd written mm-hmm. down what they told us and then we yeah. put it on telly. So you didn't have any personal qualms about the subject matter then? It sounds like you were working very closely with people in the army who probably quite liked the idea. Yeah. I mean, the background of it, I suppose, is that people in the army are strongly expect anything, any depiction of the army on the screen to be wildly inaccurate mm. and awful. Mm. And they, they generally hate it. Okay. So very little stuff that they look at on screen and go, oh yeah, that's that's what it's like. Yeah. Uh, and so, at the beginning, they rightly, given their experience, suspected that that's what our show was going to be like as well. Mm. And so, some of them wouldn't talk to us, didn't want to talk to us. But then the ones that we did talk to, and we kind of explained what our thinking behind the show was, were like, oh, okay, yeah. Well, if you get it right, then that mm. that would be great. And one of our, our best uh, hires, as it were, was another bomb disposal uh, officer, former bomb disposal yeah. officer called Liam Fitzgerald Finch. And he'd left the army about, he'd actually been in Afghanistan about six months before we filmed it. Gosh. So he'd re- he was really straight out of, out, out of that conflict. Yeah. 
and we he was just on set every day going oh, you need to do it like this you need to do it like this you need to, yeah just just pick up the paintbrush and brush the dirt away yeah. you know and he was there for all the all the questions which seem silly but actors need them answered like mm. you know is there a way to pick up a helmet and he's just like just pick it up okay. <laughs> you know, but, but you kind of go well there with some things there's a a way of doing something that the army will just go oh yeah they know what they're doing and then there's a way mm. of doing it we would look stupid and they just want to make sure that they they didn't look stupid and they looked like they were getting it right right down to how you pick up a helmet Mm. so did the program change in between you coming up with the idea for it and speaking to people in the army in order to develop it yeah a bit i think the the sort of the the sort of fundamental core of it was the same Mm. we were kind of interested in what the soldiers experience of being in Afghanistan was mm. because also we'd seen there were there were quite a few there'd been quite a few programs on like crime shows and things where the twist of the the murder is that actually the guy who's done it is someone who's left the army with PTSD and it felt like I'd seen three or four separate things where that was the that was the plot not to diminish the experience of anyone who had PTSD Mm. but I'm not sure that that is happening to the extent that it is and even if it is I don't think that the way you're doing it in your crime show (laughs) is very caring or useful (laughs) and 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 also most most soldiers in the British army particularly weren't having that experience and were kind of going yeah this is what we train for and actually we want to be not that they specifically wanted to be in Afghanistan. They were also well aware of the, the some of the weirdnesses of being there. Mm-hmm. But they were going, you know, this is not our experience. We actually have a good time. We're doing the mm-hmm. thing that we we're doing the thing that we trained for. Mm-hmm. You know, this is why we became soldiers, not to sit around on a base in Didcot. And obviously, disposing of bombs is a semi terrifying thing to do. Mm-hmm. But you know, if you've trained and trained and trained to do it, you actually want to do it. Yeah. And I want to talk about the ending of the series now, the last series, which I really like um, because it's quite refreshing in that it's not unambiguously happy. It ends with one of the team being left behind when the rest of the team fly home. And it seems very open-ended, which is kind of also quite suitable for the subject of this podcast. Could you talk me through the thinking behind the ending? Well... In a sense, the war was ending. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, we knew that there was this big drawdown of troops in real life and that even if there was going to be more show, it probably wouldn't be in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. So we had to have something to finish that. Stephen, uh, Stephen White, who played Simon, mm-hmm. had decided that this was going to be his last series. So we wanted something conclusive for him. We didn't really want to kill anyone because mm. it never seemed very funny. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the, like literally the first thing we did in the first episode was to kill someone. And that I think that was important to do because you have to go, this is a genuinely dangerous place where you could get shot at any moment. Mm. You have to establish that. But beyond that, it's sort of then hard to, to do anything, mm. to do that again, I think without it feeling gratuitous and and definitely not funny so we didn't really want to kill him and we'd already we already had the problem with ollie who played nick medhurst in that he was only able to shoot two episodes and so we'd already had to write him out yeah which we didn't want to do you know we had loads of stuff for him but uh, he got a theater job and so we couldn't then blow simon up or shoot him or whatever it was Mm. as well it would just feel like we were sort of feel gratuitous I think and then we we kind of thought of the ending of him kind of going rogue I can't remember whether, whether we'd read the story about that marine who kind of went walk about in Afghanistan you know the guy who I can't remember his name but his his story is the basis of the second series of serial yeah it's American guy and he just kind of walked off the base and there was this huge search for him and then days later he turned up at a different base uh, and it was like what's happened has he been compromised you know has he been captured mm. and then released has he is he a double agent is he you know all this sort of stuff yeah it's a very interesting story I, I don't think we'd heard of that but we were kind of interested in the idea of somebody who just kind of 
you know, he'd, he'd been treated so badly in his in his mind. He'd been treated really badly by the yeah. army and all these terrible things that happened to him. I mean, we were very yeah. cruel to, to Simon. He was the butt of most of the jokes, wasn't he, I think? Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I think I do have reservations about the way that the ending treats Simon, especially given that we didn't get a fourth series. If we got a fourth series, we could have actually found out what happened to him. He could have he could have got the help he so clearly needed, <laughs> you know. Yeah. I mean, off screen, but you know, they, they would have we could have dealt with that. But as it yeah. is, because we ended after series three, we kind of go, um, well, there he is, still sitting in Afghanistan, and, and he wouldn't <laughs> he wouldn't still be sitting in Afghanistan. They'd have found him. Uh, he's just not that good of a backwoodsman. <laughs> yeah, okay. to not get caught. You know, so he'd have been found. He'd have been caught. He'd have probably been court martialed. Mm. He might have been put in uh, military prison for a little while. Depending on the ass- an assessment of his actual mental state, we would have found out whether you know he was treated in a way that was more to do with treatment than punishment. I mean, there's a, there's a sort of range of things that could happen, which we which we did the research for, um, but we mm. kind of never got to actually do that, unfortunately. There were lots of people in the army who were really annoyed at that mm. ending. They felt like we'd had this team who'd stayed together all the way through and we'd sort of mm. dealt with it with honesty and they just hated the fact that his team walked out on him, essentially. Yeah. I mean, they were kind of thrown yeah. out by the lieutenant colonel, but really we should have, they should have stayed and found him. They should have stayed until they found him from the point of view of the lots of the soldiers that we talked to. Mm. So I don't know, maybe we should have done that, but we didn't. <laughs> so And it's too late because we shot it. There we go. <laughs> I thought it was a little bit Malvolio, kind of like someone being left a little bit out at the end of all the merriment. I, I don't know. I quite liked it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I was, I was, I've always been really into those those characters. There's always there's one in every Shakespearean comedy, isn't there? Yeah, yeah. And two of them are called Antonio. <laughs> um, <laughs> but like when I was about fourteen, I played Jaquees in the school play, as you like it, oh, wow. and uh, he's left yeah. out at the end. Like, yeah. oh do you want to come and join the party and he says uh to see no pastime i <laughs> you know, he's yeah. gonna go off and sit in a cave basically <laughs> like yeah right, fair enough <laughs> it's always one yeah i think it makes it a slightly more interesting ending yeah i know you know i i'm i sort of defend it i think that i think that we probably could have dealt with it a bit better we could have actually found him yeah you could have had that ending where the the army vehicle uh, sort of drives across looking for him, and he's sort of sitting in his cave. He, he, he. and then mm. the lieutenant colonel with a sort of troop of infantry, sort of just kind of walk in the door and go, <laughs> oh, "Come on!" <laughs> <No>. <laughs> sure, and I think that would have been funnier as well, actually. But it's very easy to kind of think of, or well, how how to change things ages later. Yeah, it's like the the Christmas episode. My, the Christmas episode is my least favorite. And it's partly to do with the way that Tower Block is introduced. We had this this rule that we invented early on to make sure it was funny, uh, that nobody would wear sunglasses, which seems like a really kind of nothingy thing mm-hmm. to get irate about. <laughs> it, really, it really escalated. Because <laughs> um, we, uh, Ian, the director of the first two series, who was great, um, mm-hmm. really kind of you know made that show into the, the sort of war movie that it, it wanted to be he wanted this shot where Tablock gets off the chopper and he's wearing sunglasses and mm-hmm. and he looks like he's out of top gun you know and it's this kind of <laughs> there he is sex on legs sort of thing yeah and we were like no because no one wears sunglasses and also anyone who wears sunglasses in a comedy you're immediately especially when no one else is wearing them you're immediately mm-hmm. going that guy's a dick <laughs> he, thinks, <laughs> he thinks far too much of himself and he wanted sure. the audience to like him more than that. And so we went and mm. he was like, yeah, but look at the shot. Look at the shot. Mm. We kind of went back and forth over it and we shot both versions and we argued about it in the edit. And mm. uh, eventually we had to kind of turn around to the exec and say, which version do you prefer? And he went, the one with the sunglasses. And we felt angry and betrayed <laughs> and still do. <laughs> but uh, I, I realised like last week, what's this, five years after we after we made it mm. and what we should have done is had him come on off with the sunglasses take them off fumble it drop them and then they get <laughs> run over by a, a mastiff you know and he's like oh <laughs> bloody hell 
<laughs> you know, and, and immediately you've got this guy who looks like a dick and then we've undermined him and it's funny. Yeah. 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 But again, much easier to think of that five years later when you're not arguing in a hot tent in South Africa. <laughs> but there we go. So thinking about what could have been done with Bluestone 4.2, both um, the existing series and afterwards, brings us quite neatly to your first unfinished project, which is in fact the possibility of continuing Bluestone 4.2. Could I ask you what you were thinking the options might be for <laughs> what that? What were you thinking? Um, <laughs> yes, good question. Um, so there were lots of things that that team, I mean, it's just parenthetically, it's it's fairly unrealistic that mm. uh, that team would be brought together again in that mm. way. The idea of those, all of those people somehow turning up mm. in a different theatre is is kind of ridiculous. But but we could mm. we could we could find ways around that as long as you I think the phrase is hang a lantern on it and make it and just go wow what are the chances you okay know, yeah the beginning then it's kind of fine. So we could have we could have sent them back to Afghanistan. Despite the the fact that the war was over, in inverted commas, the war is is very much not over, and I think there are still British troops there, and they're often doing kind of quite specialist things like bomb disposal. So uh, we have some of the best bomb disposal expertise in the world in the British Army, and people want to learn from us. So it would have been quite easy to put them there, quite easy to put them in Iraq, or I think there might have been some of the stuff we we sort of got hinted at by the army that went, oh, I can't say that they're not in Syria. <laughs> okay. you know, that yeah, sort sure. of thing. Yeah. So wherever there's something going on, there's a, mm. there's a chance that British bomb disposal will be there. But the one we actually pitched to, uh, to the channel was Somalia. So mm. Somalia is a, a really horrible place, but it's getting better. And there's lots of things about Somalia that, that kind of worked for us particularly in Mogadishu. Well, oh, our, our military advisor had spent a lot of time in Mogadishu. So we had the, yeah. again, we could kind of go to the real people and find out what really happened and make it truthful, which was very important. Mm. And there's a, there's a UN mission to Somalia uh, and there's an EU mission to Somalia, which at the time yeah. that we were pitching, it was run by the Italian army, which felt inherently uh, funny, not... <laughs> not in a kind of xenophobic way, <laughs> but, yeah. the idea, but the idea that, uh, you know, our British troops are just, there's six Brits in the mm. base and everyone else is Italian and the mm. catering is sensational. <laughs> <laughs> um, but they're, they're sort of confused about what's going on and there's the language barrier and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. And there's also, there's a, troops from you know, other African nations also providing security and there's piracy and there's warlords and there's uh, unbelievably large quantities of unexploded ordnance people have museums of unexploded bombs and if you're thinking of an actual museum what they do is they collect unexploded ordnance or sometimes yeah. exploded ordnance you know they basically they find bits and pieces and they just uh, lay them out next to the road for people to come and come and look at, and it's all incredibly dangerous. Oh, oh Libya as well. We were wondering about Libya, but it became, I think, even the British had to pull out of Libya because it got far too dangerous. Mm. You know, in order to be there, they'd have had to be there in considerably larger numbers to ensure they were in safety. Yeah, but no, Somalia was was the one we went for, mm-hmm. and there was lots of them. There's lots of them to do. You could have got the lieutenant colonel there as a sort of liaison officer. And as soon as you get the lieutenant colonel there, he can he can sort of specifically request that the rest of the team get there as sort of punishment for Simon, <laughs> <laughs> you know, which would have resolved that question as well. Um, yeah. We also had an idea for a film, actually, where uh, they ended up in the Falklands. I mean, this was, I think this is much less realistic, <laughs> mm. even by the standards of sitcom but we had this idea that a lieutenant colonel gets appointed as a sort of military envoy to Port Stanley Mm -hmm. and he insists that his old Bluestone team come along and spend six months (laughs) sitting in a very (laughs) rainy field 
um, disposing <laughs> of landmines. <laughs> okay. Um, so they've got, he basically goes, right, you're going to give you the shittiest job in the entire world. Yeah. You know, you're in the South Atlantic, it's it's wet, it's cold. The only things around are, are sheep and uh, penguins. Uh, and so they're all stuck there, miles from any civilization in tents. Mm-hmm. And at that point, the Argentinians invade again. Because <laughs> there was actually, uh, again, around the time of Bluestone, there was a bit of sabre rattling from yeah. Argentina saying, oh, actually, the Malvinas are ours and uh, we we want to reopen negotiations about the future of the of the islands and all this sort of stuff. And you're like, oh, could it be plausible that they, they could invade again? You know, it feels like these things are, you kind of go, well, that's not going to happen. And then, you know, in 1983 or whenever it was, nobody thought it was going to happen then either. And then suddenly yeah. they, they turned up on South Georgia. So you could easily kind of go, oh, yeah, there they are. In the, in the Falklands, uh, they're stuck in a field miles from Port Stanley. The Argent, uh, Argentinians invade, capture Port Stanley and you know, secure the airfield and so on. And the only mm-hmm. team <laughs> who, are, who, are, who aren't, um, haven't been captured, haven't surrendered immediately, uh, Bluestone 4-2, who are stuck in the field, and they, they have to kind of sneak up on Port Stanley and they you know, they single-handedly win the war while the task force is still sailing south. <laughs> so it's quite a silly premise, <laughs> but quite a funny one. <laughs> um, as long as the lieutenant colonel's in it, he's my favourite character. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think he's I think he's a lot of people's favourite character. He's so he was so easy to write for. I mean, Tony is very easy to write for because he's just he can just make anything funny. Yeah, but also the character is just is just funny. One of the weird things about it was that we met a load of loads of bomb disposal people. We went up to Chester Barracks and we went to a yeah. um, licensing exercise in um, in a field somewhere, <laughs> mm-hmm. in a cold, wet field somewhere, where some people blow things up. And uh, loads of people have said, "Oh, have you met? Uh, have you met Lieutenant Colonel such and such?" We were like, "No." And they go, "Really?" Because Lieutenant Colonel seemed. We were convinced it was based on he was based on him. <laughs> you know, some slightly camp, you know, a bit fey, you know, like that. And we're like, no, it's not. It's, we've never met him. And like, really? Because it's exactly like <laughs> And uh, no, we just, we just made him up. <laughs> well, I could speak to you about Bluestone 4 too, but I am now going to move on to your second unfinished project oh. that you've given me, um, which is your ongoing quest to find something in totalitarianism to write a sitcom yes. about. Could you talk me through your ideas for that? So I suppose, I don't know who else you've talked to in your podcast, but uh, it's very much in the nature of TV writing mm-hmm. that you have to think of absolutely loads of ideas and most of them will never happen. Yeah. And uh, and so sort of picking out one of them and going, oh, this didn't happen is sort of unsurprising because every single TV writer has got tens or hundreds of sort of ideas in various stages of formation. Some of them, you know, you've, you've pitched and they've been turned down and some of them didn't even get as far as being pitched because you couldn't work out a way of making it work. But for a while, I was trying to find some way of writing about various sort of facets of the political situation. Mm -hmm. And I really wanted to do a Vladimir Putin sitcom. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I did actually meet someone who is doing, was doing a Vladimir in in, uh, LA, who's doing a Vladimir Putin show okay. i don't know whether it's actually happening or not um but it was a very different idea to ours ours was kind of set now and it was it was almost black adderish it's yeah. sort of cartoony but at the same time it's cartoony but it feels like you have the genuine danger and the horrific power and mm. psychopathy of that of those people mm. in it there's this guy who was his his sort of spin doctor who who went around Apparently, uh, this is all from Adam Curtis, I think, not just funding things that the Kremlin agreed with, but also funding loads of things that the Kremlin disagreed with in order to Mm. kind of just muddy the waters and make everything really confusing. (laughs) And uh, Medvedev was, I mean, we changed all the names, but it would have been pretty obvious. (laughs) (laughs) We wanted Keith Allen to play Vladimir Putin. Okay. (laughs) But, um, yeah, people didn't really want to do it. The guy who directed the third series of Bluestone was quite up for it. Yeah. 
uh, as a director and he mentioned it to a few people in LA and they were just like there's no way we're going to do this show because we don't want to get assassinated and it's quite a I think that's a legitimate concern <laughs> yeah. You know? yeah yeah um, I think in a way you'd either get murdered or you'd get on Russia Today you know yeah. the Kremlin would fund it and go ah yes you see this is how how good our sense of humor is we can laugh at our leader you know mm. but it, it did feel genuinely dangerous but I think possibly dangerous in in exactly the wrong way and actually I think that was probably true about the various other sort of things that were in this area yeah I think it's I think in a way it's quite important to important to be able to laugh at the ridiculousness of some of the people on the far right and the and the far left <laughs> but mainly the far right because of the because of the nonsense you know and I think that I think if you take them too seriously they kind of suggesting that they're a political force in a way that they mm. in a way that they mm. kind of aren't really you know it's, it's a fringe thing a lot of the time there's a really weird and kind of amazing play called Mein Kampf which was very popular in Germany in the 80s and it was written by I think by an Auschwitz survivor and it's uh it's about Adolf Hitler boarding with this Jewish couple in Austria in the in like 1932 mm-hmm. Uh, and it's sort of got the Keystone Cops in it, so it's sort of okay. of that era. But it's it's like this kind of weird, weird farce, and there's these deeply off-coloured jokes, which I won't repeat. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, but that idea of being able to kind of find the ridiculousness in some of those extreme views, I think, is quite important to me. Yeah. And so we were looking at Tommy Robinson and Nick Griffin and so on. And the way that, you know, Steve Bannon suddenly started sniffing around Europe and meeting Mm. uh, Marine Le Pen and then going, oh, no, actually, uh, Marine Le Pen going, oh, I've got nothing to do with Steve Bannon because we're nationalists. (laughs) And the idea that there's this sort of international nationalist movement is inherently funny as well. And they're kind of going, well, we can't can't possibly be international and talk to people from other because we're nationalists. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it felt like there was a lot of there was a lot of material there. And just the nonsense, the, the fact that it feels like a lot of the time, a lot of those views are being held by people who, who don't actually even believe them. Mm. I don't quite believe that Katie Hopkins and Julia Hartley Brewer actually think sure. the things they th- they claim to think. Yeah. It's just trolling, isn't it? And that's probably not the case with a lot of people on the right, but they're kind of going, what are the hot button topics and how can I kind of push mm. the people who agree with me? And it sort of feels very, very blackly comic to me. But uh, sadly, broadcasters generally don't hold that view. (laughs) (laughs) There's a bit of a debate about whether satire changes views or whether if you're laughing at people, it stops you from engaging in other forms of political engagement or activism. Do you have a position on that? Yeah, um, it's interesting, isn't it? It's hard not to think of that Peter Cook quote when he founded the Establishment Club in the 60s and he said he wanted to have some of the spirit of those great satirical Berlin cabarets of the 1930s that did so much to stop the rise of Hitler. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) You're like, yeah, I mean, is any of this going to make any difference whatsoever? And you kind of go, well, probably not. But I don't Mm. think that not doing it means that you do stop the rise of Hitler either. Yeah. You know, yeah. I think there are there are other things to do as well. And I think that I think there are ways in which making someone a figure of fun, I think it can make some of their positions harder to maintain if you've really yeah. taken something apart. But then, you know, you look at Trump and it didn't work with him, did it? People were taking the piss out of him for four years. And mm. okay, so he didn't get re-elected, but more people voted for him uh, the second time round than the first time round. Mm. <laughs> people who are the supporters of the of the object of ridicule probably just get further entrenched, and it just mm. kind of confirms the idea that the mainstream media is biased against them, and so they're going, "Well, this guy must this guy must be doing something right." If television has come out against him. Okay, so I want to move on now to the third unfinished project that you suggested that we could talk about. Yeah which is an unfinished novel. Oh, no, 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 no. New, new. No? It's an unpublished novel. 
unpublished novel. So it is finished. Oh, yeah. Oh, gosh. Okay. Even better. Not really. (laughs) (laughs) No, this was a, I mean, I actually can't remember when I finished it, but it was a long time ago. Could you tell me what it's about? Yes. Uh, It's called All of Rachel's Lovers. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's about a woman called Rachel. And I mean, it's sort of the story of her life. I suppose it goes back to when she was about five and it goes through to when she's in her mid thirties, I think, mm-hmm. which is the sort of now of the of the book, although that is now fifteen years ago or something. She's described by various people that she has slept with. Yeah. So some of them are people that she's very serious about. There's, you know, she's she's married uh, at one point. There's someone who that she's childhood friends with, who you know is her boyfriend when she's five and they sort of stay in touch there's one night stands and there's there's sort of you know short relationships and long relationships and everything in between some of them are kind of funny and some of them are kind of not very nice and she doesn't have a very good time of it really not sleeping with people she sometimes has a good time of that but (laughs) she she has depression and various things kind of trigger that and sort of renew it like she has a quite about postnatal depression uh, and so it's sort of it's sort of about depression really but it's also about mm. various partners inability to actually get a handle on what she's like mm. and that in a way is the problem with the book <laughs> because I mean I sent it around to various agents and publishers and so on whenever this was 15 years ago and the the sort of consensus was that you just don't get enough of a sense of who Rachel is. Okay. Like she's this sort of uh, empty figure at the at the centre of the book. Yeah. And that's that's probably right. <laughs> um, yeah. And it was kind of in a way that was sort of the point. Yes. You have all these people who who project their own sort of thoughts and needs onto her, mm. who aren't interested in in any of that sort of interior life or who are interested in it and think they can cure her as it were or whatever it is and I mean the final one she ends up settling down with a woman in Pontyprith in South Wales and those two you feel like oh actually there's finally some sense of her understand of them understanding each other Mm -hmm. and that was sort of that's meant to be the sort of oh okay She's found she's found the one because it's someone that yeah. she can actually talk to on a level and so on. But you have to wade through an awful lot of rather stupid people to get <laughs> And I think that I think that was probably quite hard work. Is it frustrating that the point of the book was also sort of stopping it from getting published? Yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean some people when you when you get rejection letters a lot of them just go, oh, no thanks, not for us. Uh, and some of them go into a bit more depth. And you get some people who will uh, maybe talk to you about it a bit more. Mm-hmm. Various people who kind of engaged with it a bit more and gave me a bit more feedback said, oh, well, you need to let Rachel speak. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't have a sense of who she is, so you need to let her, you know, why hasn't she got her own chapter? And I was, and, and I think remain actually quite opposed to that as an idea. Mm-hmm. Because I think the whole point of it is that it's everyone else describing her and it's everyone else sort of failing to get her. And mm-hmm. you have got a character who, who does get her. It's just that you have to wait to the very end. And I think that's a problem, that you have to wait to the very end. And maybe, I don't know, I, I haven't looked at it for years, but maybe I'd need to reread it and go, well, actually, maybe I didn't kind of crack that. I mean, I, I don't think the idea is necessarily bad, but I I think I wasn't good enough to pull it off, certainly. Mm. I think that novel could exist. But I think you'd almost need to write it from Rachel's point of view first and then write the the mirror version of it. Mm. And I think as well, it had this problem that sort of sketch shows have, that you kind of get going with one thing. You're kind of reading this, particularly the first one, actually. People really loved the first narrator. And then he sort of stops and you go, oh, maybe yeah. that guy's going to come back. But he doesn't. No, nobody comes okay. back. And everyone only gets one chapter. And some of the chapters are really long. And some of them are really short. 
it's a sort of jigsaw that you kind of hopefully will be able to tessellate together and go, oh, I see what happened. And it, the first guy, the guy, the childhood friend, he dies in a motorbike accident. And that's one of the reasons that or one of the kind of triggers for her depression is this guy that she was kind of always been in love with in a, in a way or one of her closest friends. And he's suddenly not there anymore. People really liked the writing of that bit and were like, why can't we just have more of that? Now we've got to start again with some other, who's this? Who's what? Yeah. Who? <laughs> it's sort of inherently frustrating constantly going back and and starting again and the way that the the sort of time scheme of it works is that you've got the first one you know starts when they're five and sort of carries on through until they're 19 or 20 and then you sort of go back to when she's about 16 and then you sort of go forward and you have sort of university boyfriends and you find out a bit more about the first one and so on so it sort of it sort of jumps about essentially Mm-hmm. ultimately that is asking asking a lot of the reader within the kind of tone of the book that it was it wasn't a very literary book I was more interested in I was interested in getting the, getting everyone to have a sort of have their own voice but it's all in the first person and it's not it doesn't sort of feel like a literary undertaking it's probably closer to chick lit lad lit mm-hmm. genre in that it's quite kind of light and uh, it's about these romantic and sexual relationships I think it's a sort of odd mix of bits that work and bits that don't work. And just thinking about the writing process more generally now, you mentioned in your notes to me that you quite often have to adapt your jokes. Um, I'm thinking of Potted Panto and Potted Potter when you said you have to keep updating them. Could you tell me about that process of things just always being continuous while you're writing? Yeah, I mean, those, those two shows have been going a very long time. So Potted Potter has been going, I think it's the longest running uh, Harry Potter parody. There's various others, but we we got there first, even before a very Potter musical. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> although people in Chicago often go, "Oh, I can't believe you're doing something that very Potter musical have done." Well, I'm like, <laughs> yeah, we did it. We did it first. <laughs> it was probably ours was probably quicker to write because no one only got one song in it. <laughs> uh, anyway, yeah. So we always had stuff in it that was that was topical not in a kind of mass it's not a kind of hard-hitting political satire or anything but you sort of do throwaway jokes about things for example there's a bit where they're talking about the anagram of uh what's his name in book two (laughs) how well do you know harry potter um i know it slightly well (laughs) there's a character and it's the anagram of his name is i am lord voldemort oh tom tom marvolo riddle yeah yeah tom marvolo riddle (laughs) His anagram, the anagram of his name is I'm Lord Baltimore. And so there's in the show, there's this little bit where they, they do a little kind of quiz game and they go, What which evil dark lord is an anagram of I of I'm not really riddle? <laughs> eh, Darth Vader. He's like, no, no, obviously not. He's like, eh. and he guesses another one. And the, the second one he guesses has changed throughout okay. the run of the show. And at one point, just as the previous American election was happening, we had Donald Trump. And it was like, ah, oh, hilarious, Donald Trump you know, the audience are falling about, mm-hmm. especially uh, on the coasts uh, and in the north of North America uh, and mm-hmm. in Canada, less so in Kentucky and <laughs> <laughs> and so on. But even in the south, we sort of got away with that joke for a while. Mm-hmm. And then actually during Trump's presidency, that joke kind of became less and less funny and became divisive. And people were sort of getting up and walking out and going, how can you possibly oh, say wow. that Donald Trump is an evil dark lord? And you'd get some people cheering and some people sort of stomping out. And particularly, technically, the show is currently resident in Las Vegas. I mean, it's not on at the moment because of COVID. But yeah. We managed a year, nearly a year in, in Vegas uh, before it got shut shut down, hopefully temporarily. And there, people, you know, we'd have 10 walkouts a night. And we're like, this, is, this joke isn't worth that. It's not that funny. <laughs> it's not really making much of a point. And it sort of felt like, as I said, the the way that society and people politically are kind of so polarized now sort of made that joke fail. So we so we changed it. I think actually we don't. We only have Darth Vader now in Vegas. But also, if we were touring it again, which we would, uh, which I hope we're doing in the autumn, then we'd probably find someone else. And we'd always put kind of local uh, local figures in. Like when we did it in Toronto, we had Rob Ford, who was the the mayor of Toronto at the time, who was okay. kept being caught taking cocaine and completely. <laughs> it's embarrassing. And then we had Doug Ford, 
yeah, Rob Ford died and his, his cousin later on became governor of Ontario and uh, immediately put into action some uh, slightly misogynist policies which involved, I think, and this is just from memory, it might not be right for any Canadians listening, <laughs> uh, shutting down abortion clinics and or domestic abuse shelters or, you know, just yeah. rubbish stuff like that. And so we had him as the evil dark lord. But that was never as funny as Donald Trump in Canada. So I think mm. even then we went back to Trump. <laughs> <laughs> he was such, a, he's such an easy target, isn't he? So you can feel with, with some jokes that at the beginning they're funny. And then after a while, they just they just aren't as funny anymore. So we had a joke about Hermione. I remember when, when Emma Watson did a speech to the UN mm. about women's rights. And so we had a little throwaway joke about her. And after a while, it just stopped being funny. Not, and I don't mm. think it was anything to do with anyone's views of her or anything. I think people just had slightly forgotten that she'd given the speech. And so we kind of, you just sort of take it out, you know, you just retire it. Yeah. Yeah. And with Potted Panto, I think that the atmosphere around a lot of comedy, especially when you've got comedy performed by two men, has mm-hmm. changed. And so when we first did Potted Panto, it was about 10 years ago, we heard all these jokes about Jeff's character wanting to, or rather not wanting to get dressed up as a woman. And it was like, oh, no, I don't, oh, no I'm not going to play the princess, you know. Mm. And the joke of the whole, the whole of that show and the whole of Potted Potter as well is that you've got two people who have to play everyone. Sure. And so someone is going to have to get dressed up as a woman. <laughs> but when we did the show The Christmas Before Last, it sort of didn't feel as funny. It's like, why yeah. you start thinking about it and going, well, the audience aren't laughing as much as that. Why? What's his problem about getting dressed up as a woman? What's yeah, the problem sure. with women, Jeff? <laughs> um, Jeff, have you got a problem with you know? And it starts to feel yeah. it starts to feel different because the because the world has changed and the world has changed for the better. And in fact, for the we did we did it for a week basically in the West End last December. We didn't want to do it for a week, but uh, <laughs> COVID, you know, <laughs> we are only on for a week. And we just took all of that stuff out, and actually, we just didn't miss it. So we, we reversed the joke. So he was actually desperate to, or he didn't care whether he got dressed up as a woman. He was just desperate to play the lead role in everything. Okay. <laughs> and so he's like, right, I'm doing, I'm, I'm going to be playing Cinderella in this, and it was, sure. and it was fine. It didn't, it didn't change the show yeah. at all. So sometimes you kind of go, oh, actually, it's just, it's sort of easy to let stuff go, you know? Yeah, yeah. I'm aware of the time. Do you have time for one Miranda question or do you need no, to go? Yeah, yeah, no, I'm, I'm not in a hurry yeah. at all. You can have time for 10 Miranda questions if you like. <laughs> Great. Um, so am I right in thinking that you joined Miranda after it had already started? No. Yeah, no, I was there from the, I mean, I was there from before the beginning, before it started. So in my, with my theatre hat on, mm. I directed most of Miranda's stage shows in like, ah, stage okay. shows in Edinburgh. So yeah. I first met her in about ninety seven or ninety eight. Um, okay. She did a show at Greyfriars Kirk House called Orange Island, and she she sort of had a sketch act called Orange Girls. I directed a couple of Orange Girls shows and some of her sort of solo shows, and she did some sort of some sort of nearly solo shows. So it was sort of all mm. about her, but she had other people in to kind of play other parts. I think the the best one we did one called Miranda Heart Throbs, which was very which was very funny. <laughs> and she was being the understudy for a this sort of old actress who was meant to be doing this tour like an evening with. Mm thing where she'd kind of come on probably a bit drunk and regale you with a few sketches and some showbiz anecdotes sort of thing mm. you know awful awful show <laughs> you know and we made programs for this fictional show that you weren't going to see and then the premise of it was that she was about to do it and suddenly that this act this fictional actress couldn't do it uh, because mm-hmm. she was too drunk and so the understudy had to go on they've had an hour to do the do a sort of tech run and get everything ready mm. for this mm. show we had this kind of this mad run through where they're going we've got this bit we've got this bit we've got to do this go oh do i have to stand here you know all this sort of stuff and we do did sketches where they sort of top and tail the sketches and so you know miranda will come on and come on with a ridiculous hat on and say a line and they go cut to the end and then you get to the last line of the sketch and you'd be like <laughs> what happened in the middle of that sketch get, this doesn't make any sense and uh, and all that sort of stuff. And it was a big, silly show. 
and it was great fun. And then we did one where she was having a party, okay. Miranda Hart's house party, uh, and the audience were the, were the guests. And initially we had this other guy called Neil Edmund, who was in it as well and who sort of came on to cover Miranda's costume changes. And then when we did it, we did it again in London and we realised actually we didn't need him. So he, he left. We didn't leave exactly. He, he did appear in the TV show. But it did work. It worked better as a solo show, actually. She's having, she's sort of trying to have this, hold this kind of crazy party together, and she's playing all these different characters. But eventually, we realise that actually she hasn't got all these friends. They're all just her. And then she realised yeah. <laughs> that in fact the audience are her friends, and she has got friends after all. It's really, it was a really good show. Actually, it was really sweet. Mm. Yeah, and then you know, around that time, she got commissioned to do radio sketch show which I worked on Mm -hmm. and the sitcom so there was a radio version of the sitcom which happened while I was out of the country and then that went to tv and uh, the sitcom went to tv and so and then I was I was there I was you know in all the kind of early discussions about what that the Miranda show was going to be I was sort of around that in fact it's my tiny tiny claim to fame that I went set it in the joke (laughs) shop Miranda (laughs) oh cool (laughs) because uh at one point during the kind of you know everything is on the table stage of development yeah. uh, she had this idea of doing something set in a village um so it was a little bit i mean tonally it wasn't like the league of gentlemen but structurally it was like the league of gentlemen okay where she would have a tourist information office and a joke shop and a mm-hmm. and a, a cake shop and a you know and a news agents and all this sort of stuff and she would be the the proprietor of each of those shops you know okay and uh I was like, I just don't don't do all the whole village. Just do the joke shop. Just do the joke shop much better. <laughs> I was going to say, I think she'd have got there anyway. <laughs> so, you know, I, don't wanna, yeah. I don't want to blow my own trumpet too much on this one. What's it like when something that you've been working on for a while in in various different forms becomes incredibly popular in the way that Miranda the sitcom did? Well, it was quite. I mean, it was quite unexpected. Quite how huge it became. Mm. I mean, I remember at the at the very beginning, two episodes had been broadcast. So it's really, really early on. Mm. BBC Two, to their enormous credit, really sort of snuck it out without too much of a fanfare. They didn't do this big splash, or this is the next big thing. They let people kind of discover it on their own terms. And so initially we didn't... Call, and they didn't have amazing reviews. People mm. were like, oh, this, is, no, this looks a bit retro. And, you know, just mm. really... Just, who is this posh girl who keeps falling over, you know? <laughs> Right, they were quite sniffy reviews, and some of the sniffy reviews were were written by people who later on were like, "Oh my god, it's my favourite show." You know, we're not going to name names. Um, <laughs> anyway, so two episodes had gone out, and we we're like, "Oh yeah," and the numbers were good, and it was like, "Oh, this all seems to be heading in the right direction," but we're not kind of quite sure. Uh, and Miranda was walking her her dog in the park, and these these youths, <laughs> these three youths came over, and she was a bit like, "Oh my god, what's going on?" You know, yeah. It looked a bit threatening. You know, she was like, oh, yeah. "Are they going to? Are they going to mug me for my for my purse?" And they had their, their trousers around their around their, their, their bums, you know, and all this sort of stuff. And there's a scene based on it okay. uh, later on where she goes and pulls their trousers up. But they, you know, these these, <laughs> these lads came over. Uh, it's very difficult to do it on an audio only thing, but they sort of yeah. they looked at her sort of slightly askance in a way that was possibly. Possibly, it was possible to construe as threatening, and they're like, "You Miranda," and he was like, "Yes, uh, yeah." He was well funny, <laughs> and then they left, and that was it. And then she was like, "Great, ah, I've got the, I've got the youth vote." Because we, I mean, we always yeah. thought that it would be a, a sort of a sort of narrowish section of possibly single women in their in their early thirties and gay men yeah. who would watch the show. <laughs> that yeah. be, that, that's the audience. And then we were like, oh no, I show it to my ten year old, she loves it. And uh, and the youths, you know, they loved it and you know my parents loved it and you know yeah. not everyone loved it. Some people really, really hated it and that was part of the yeah. fun of it too. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it sort of it sort of crept up on us. Then when we started to write series two even you know after series one had gone out, I don't think I quite appreciated what had happened. And we got together to write series two, and we were in TV Centre, and mm-hmm. I said, "Oh, should we get some? Should we get some lunch?" And mm-hmm. most of the time, some very helpful runner would go off and 
get us lunch and bring it back in and we'd sit in a horrible BBC room and eat, eat our lunch in the same room that we were working in. And so this day we were like, it's a lovely sunny day. Should we just walk down to Westfield and go to Wagamama or something? And so we walked to Westfield and as we walked along, everyone was like, it's Miranda, it's Miranda. <laughs> No, 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 no. Yeah. And I was like, oh shit, this was a really bad idea. <laughs> <laughs> um, and we, we should have pulled out. <laughs> um, mm. We went, I think it was half term as well, which probably didn't help. We went into Wagamama and uh, we sat down, and it's obviously it's long tables. Mm. And because it was completely full, uh, we had to sit right next to another couple of people. And I could see, I could tell that the person sitting next to me was kind of staring at the person opposite them who was next to Miranda, just going, it's Miranda, it's Miranda. (laughs) You know, someone incredibly famous sitting right next to you. And I think that was the point at which I was like, oh, I I see. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. She's she's hugely, hugely famous. Uh, And at that point, I also thought I would not like to be hugely, hugely famous. Yeah. Because it must be awful just being, you know, you're just on show all the time. And people coming up and saying, I can have a selfie with you. I don't think people even used the word selfie at that point. I don't think we'd invented the word selfie. Can I have a a photograph with you? Can I have a a mobile phone photograph with you? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so just maybe to wrap up then, could I ask if you'll be going back to any of the unfinished projects we've talked about and maybe picking them up again? I mean, the, the short answer is no. Uh, (laughs) we did we did try to do bluestone in lockdown we because we the the army was so involved in lots of that covid stuff especially at the beginning i think and we we pitched a show which would have been sort of all of the old team doing various different things and talking on zoom and but we could have actually filmed her in real life as well i think scott who played rocket was actually mm-hmm. in Washington DC so we were going to have him him working at the White House okay <laughs> he was like how is, how is this happening? um you know the sort of army liaison um mm-hmm. we had we we had some people who were still doing bomb disposal like I always thought that Bird should have ended up doing being an ATO like, there's quite a few yes. leaps who make that transition yeah so I was going to have her being an ATO and we're going to have Nick doing sort of security stuff in, in Whitehall, um, mm-hmm. you know, sort of consulting. We, we managed to kind of find jobs for all of them, but by the time we pitched it, they were like, no more lockdown stuff. Right, yeah. Go away. You've <laughs> yeah. seen enough. <laughs> Make it stop. So it didn't happen. I mean, in theory, I would always do more Bluestone, although the, you know, after a while, those all those actors are going to be too old to be in the army, so... Sure. Yeah. I mean, the lieutenant colonel surely must have retired by now. But he could do. I mean, he could be doing something else. And we did pitch a a show about the bomb squad as well in Manchester. And I have read recently there's going to be a show about the bomb squad in London. And we did we did some research okay. into that too. Uh, and yeah. we we sort of thought there was a show about the bomb squad in London. It turns out there is. It's just that we're not going to write it. So <laughs> that will kind of that mean that we ne- we never get to write it probably. Unless we get hired as writers with our extensive knowledge of bomb disposal. <laughs> they might actually get a, an actual bomb disposal guy to do it, I, I suspect. I'm still interested in the ridiculousness of the far right. Mm. Again, I have a suspicion that somebody is going to do something very close to that, which will stop it. A lot of the time, your life as a writer is kind of thinking of ideas and then finding out someone else is about to do it. One of the things I could have talked about that my uh, my wife was like, oh, are you going to talk about um, the Julian Assange sitcom? So a writer called David Byrne and I came up with a, a sitcom about Julian Assange. And we actually got it to the stage where Channel 4 were going to commission a pilot. And then literally the day after they, they said they were going to commission a pilot, we found out that there was a very similar premise for a show mm-hmm. on the BBC with uh, Ben Miller okay. in it. And that had been shot and was going out three months later. So that commission immediately disappeared, which was a great shame, actually, because uh, our version would have been very funny. <laughs> and the book, no, uh, I don't think you could do it now. I think mm. I think that men, especially white, middle-class, heterosexual, middle-aged men writing about a women, sort of writing about a woman's experience, even though point of it was the opposite of that in a way mm. i don't think you can do that now that might be for the best 
yeah. But yeah, there's, you know, we all, I, th I think all writers have a, a drawer or a computer file with loads of stuff on it, stuff in it that you kind of go, oh, actually, maybe that could be pulled back into life. Maybe there's a, a different way of doing that. But then you've got to try and think of new ideas as well. <laughs>